You are listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcva.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Good morning, church. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles and me, the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, as we continue a series walking through these incredible chapters, Galatians 3 and 4, that we've called No Other Way. What an incredible week it has been. You've seen, obviously, from the overflow of that today, just celebrating baptism, praising the Lord for new life in Christ in our 11 o'clock service. Also grateful to God to see 10 seniors that we're commissioning, that we're sending out, uh, most of them throughout the state of Oklahoma, some in kind of this part still of God's country, but can't wait to see what God is going to do in and through them. Also want to remind you that as a result of just kind of God's favor and just the team that he is building here, we have content that can walk alongside the very sermon that you're about to hear. In fact, if you grab out your phone and text the word WAY to 45776, our content team, creative teams, have put together something that throughout the week that you can go deeper, that you can run further and farther for Christ. And I'm so excited as we come now to Galatians 3, verses 15 through 24, I want to teach you this timeless truth that God's promise is greater than his law. Now, what is a promise? Right? A promise is a declaration that someone will do what they say they will do. And all throughout the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, God makes promises and God keeps promises. In fact, it's a startling discovery to find actually how many promises of God are in the Bible. And can I tell you the commentators range from anywhere from 7,000 promises to 30,000 promises? Now, I'll remind you that the Bible has 31,101 verses. So it may be a little advantageous to say that there's 30,000 promises in the Bible. But most commentators believe there's right at 8,000 promises in the Bible. And I don't know about you, but we need every single one of them, right? God will do what he says he will do. Do. And that's why in the Bible, God promises to be faithful in Hebrews 10, verse 23. He is faithful to do what he says he will do because he promises to be faithful. He also promises that his promises will never fail in Joshua 21, verse 45. God, by his grace, promises us in Romans 8, verses 38 through 39, to love us no matter what. That God loves us with an unconditional love that knows no height or depth or width or breadth, the Bible says. Why? Because God loves us no matter what he promises. God promises that he will always be our strength in Isaiah 41 verse 10. And he also promises that he will give us an enduring hope. That regardless of our context, regardless of what we're going through in our circumstances... That we have a confident expectation of what is to come promised by God himself in Christ. According to Romans 15 verse 13. God's promise is greater than his law. And Paul in this section is overwhelmingly continuing in the certainty of faith in Jesus Christ over the law. The law doesn't save. The law can't deliver anybody. All the law can do is diagnose what you know to already be true in your heart, that we need a Savior. It is only faith and faith alone. And that is why 
Paul in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 14, has now pointedly demonstrated, not from one's experience, not from one's rational thought, but from the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, six separate times in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 14, Paul quotes the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes the law five times, and then one of the prophets once. Why? To prove from God's word that he keeps his promises. That the promise that God would give Abraham would be fulfilled ultimately and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a result of Christ and what he has done that warrants us justification, that we are declared righteous before a holy God by faith in Christ. So the Apostle Paul now in verses 15 through 24, he now continues this unrelenting argument. He gives here his historical and theological considerations. He considers the relationships of Abraham and Moses and of Christ. And Paul is going to show us in these verses, one, the unconditional covenant with Abraham, that it stands in contrast to the law of Moses in verses 15 and 18. He then in two questions, in verses 19 through 22, he's going to sum up the function and purpose of the law. He's also going to outline its inferiority of the law to save. And then in verses 23 and 24, he's going to use two metaphors to once and for all signify that life comes through Christ and Christ alone because God's promise is greater than his law. He is also, for the first time in the New Testament, going to introduce three words, promise, covenant, and inheritance in verses 15 and 18 that will show not only the superiority of faith over the law, but these words will underscore the rest of the application of the entire book of Galatians. Oh, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go. God's promise is greater than his law. With that in mind, let's give our hearts this morning to verses 15 through 24. And your Bible says this in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. For now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. For this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by a promise, but God gave to Abraham this by a promise, this covenant that now I'm giving to you, Paul says. Look back at verse 15. You see, Paul, who is possibly responding here to a specific argument within these churches of Southern Galatia. You see, apparently they were Judaizers. They were Jewish legalists who were teaching that there was a new way of faith. That sir, the old way of faith in Abraham is just fine. You can start your faith with that. But the moment that God gave the law to Moses, there is a new modified way to God, which includes faith plus works. You ever done something new in your life? 
mean, have you ever experienced something new and all of a sudden everything's different after that? Uh, for me, it's happened this week. Uh, I was yesterday watching golf almost the entire day. In fact, Bryn came in and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm watching golf. She said, you are? And I said, yes. And she goes, why? I said, I don't even know. You see, not once, but twice this week, I went to Southern Hills and took in the PGA Championship. What a breathtaking jewel that God has blessed us with. You need to be proud of what God's doing in Oklahoma. That's one of the most beautiful courses in this hemisphere. Oh, it's tough. I mean, you can get lost in 18. I got 15, 18-foot bunkers. I'd get lost in there for weeks. All the difficulty of that course. But you know what? One of the best things is not only these golfers. Man, they're good. They're really good. But it's also the food. I had one of the best hot dogs and cookies that I've ever had in my life. In fact, they were so good, I had them twice. In fact, I had a church member this morning say, yeah, pastor, I saw you were out of the PGA. I said, yeah, it was wonderful. He said, well, what do you think? I said, well, the golfers were good, but the cookies were great. There's a new way of life. I know who these golfers are now. I've seen them make shots that no one else can make. And so now I'm captivated. I'm interested. I'm going to keep watching. Why? Because it's a new way of life. And that's exactly what Paul was addressing with the gospel. That you had these Judaizers that were propagating a false gospel. That they were giving into a new teaching. Always be aware of that. No one ever has a new way of God because there's only one way. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is addressing right here. That some had said that God had modified his way to have a relationship with him that is no longer by faith like with Abraham. It is faith plus works. And so that is why Paul here, interestingly enough, he uses this resounding, straightforward argument. And he uses here a human example. He says, just as you have a man who has a last will and testament that has been ratified... No one can change or revoke the terms of that agreement in like manner. How much more so can a covenant be never changed when it is made by a faithful and holy God? And that is Paul's point in verse 15. You see this word covenant here? It appears for the first time in the New Testament. And it has a dual meaning here. One of covenant or lasting will and testament. You see, historically, this word covenant described an immediate binding agreement between two parties. An agreement that was ratified when these two parties would outline their terms and then signify in completion they would slay two animals. Usually oxen or cows or goats or sheep or birds. And then the two parties would walk through these slain animals whose blood would symbolically ratify the agreement, signifying that unto death forever that this agreement would be upheld. In like manner, God in the, throughout the Old Testament makes several covenants. God's covenants are divine. They are eternal. They are unilateral they are irrevocable, and they are undeserved. For instance, God came to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13. The Bible says that in Genesis 6 that God looked upon his expanse and creation and saw that there were hardly a handful that wanted to faithfully follow him. 
In fact, that handful was confined within one family, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Him, and Japheth. And it would be these men that over a hundred years they would build an ark for the rains would come and God would flood the earth. And after he did so, in Genesis 9, verse 13, the Bible says that God put a rainbow in the sky. And as God hung up his bow, signifying that his wrath would be unleashed upon his one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would never flood the earth again. And God made a covenant with Noah. And furthermore, three separate times in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 12, God would come to Abram, who was a pagan in Earl of Chaldees. I've told you before, it's like being from Guyman, Oklahoma. It's in the middle of nowhere. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God found him. Abraham wasn't desiring God. God desired a relationship with him. God said, Abram, leave your family and your kindred and go to a nation that I will show you. And he promised many things. That Abraham would have land, descendants, blessing, as long as he followed the Lord. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Then, in Genesis 15, verses 6 through 17, Abram goes to God just like we would and said, Hello, I'm still childless. It's 10 plus years later. And yeah, I've traveled all of this way, but no progeny. So God says, get up, look up. It's actually very helpful theology. You know, when we feel overwhelmed in our life, quit looking inward, look upward. And he says, Abram, look at the stars in the sky, for as numerous as they, so shall your generations be. And God, right there in Genesis 15, made a covenant with Abram. So much so that God comes back to him in Genesis 17 and says, you know what? I want you to be circumcised. I want you to have an outward sign of an inward reality that you will forever be set apart because you're mine. And these generations will come, Abram, so much so that I'm going to change your name, that you will no longer be Abram, exalted father, but you will be Abraham, exalted father of many nations, and it was so. Centuries passed, and once again, God came to David, the Davidic king in 2 Samuel 7, and says, of your royal lineage will one who will come in like manner, and he will be the king of all kings, pointing to Jesus Christ. But then remarkably, in a time of barrenness within God's people, in a time when they were at their lowest, God was at his best. God will keep his promises to his people. And that is why in Jeremiah 31, 31, God says a new commandment that I'll give to you, a new covenant that I'll give to you, that my law will be based upon your heart. And there will be one who will come that you will place your faith in him and he will be the way to an everlasting relationship with me. In fact, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, verse 24, says that it was Christ who was the mediator of these Covenants, this covenant that God gave right here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, in relation to what God had done through his promises to Abram. Now, something interesting. When God made his covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15, the Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 12, that God caused Abram to have a deep sleep. Abraham wasn't awake. This wasn't a bilateral covenant of two parties. This was unilateral. Abram was asleep. Thus, are you ready for this? Meaning that God's covenant with Abraham is unilateral, unconditional, 
exclusively, are you ready for this? By God with himself. And that is the foundation that Paul sets up his point in verses 15 and 16. This is what a man-made covenant that you know between two parties is binding. No, this was a covenant made with a holy God by God with himself. And as God is eternal, this covenant's eternal. And as God is one is truth, this covenant is irrevocable. This covenant will last for everlasting, for God's promise is greater than his law. And it is this example that Paul moves from a human illustration in verse 15 to now God's covenant fulfilled in Christ in verse 16. And that is why he says, now, you see this word? The promises were made to Abraham and to his who? His offspring, underlying, circle this word is significant. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. Who is this, Paul? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? You see this word promise in verse 16? Paul uses the word promise six separate times in these verses to detail the immutability of God's covenant to Abraham through his representative offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, amazingly, Paul draws this verse, are you ready for this? From Genesis 13, verse 15, and Genesis 17, verse 8, applying the very promised offspring given to Abram as one who will propagate life to all nations is now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, this word is in a masculine collective singular, Zerah. Paul uses the same structure inspired by the Holy Spirit right here to mean simply one of lineage or the descendants upon all descendants. Speaking of Christ, who as the specific male descendant is the ultimate promised one from the lineage of Abraham who would accomplish God's plan and ultimate victory by his active obedience and sacrificial giving of his life on the cross. Paul's point in verse 16 is nothing, not even the giving of the law, could annul God's covenant of grace towards his people for those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are given by God's grace a covenant that is everlasting. It is truly life-changing. Were these Judaizers, their gospel was gospel-less. This gospel is full of Christ and life. So we've learned about covenants, we've learned about promise. Look at verse 18. For now the inheritance comes by the law, for it is no longer coming by a promise. But God gave to Abraham by a promise. Abraham speaks here of an inheritance that is of the original blessing and salvation 
promised by God himself through the covenant of Abraham. This isn't done by the works of the law in men. This promise comes from the almighty God himself, the true one. You ever had something that's true? You ever had something that's authentic? The original? Oh, I think one of the things I missed about Texas the most is it's just its food, right? And so, you know, I miss authentic Tex-Mex. You know, real fajitas with, you know, chipotle spices that are real. You know, real queso with chorizo. Let's just, you know, field trip right now. Let's go, right? I miss the barbecue, the brisket and the ribs and all of these gracious things the Lord has blessed us with. But really, if we're honest, if I could choose one thing right now, it'd probably be the original Dublin Dr. Pepper, which comes from Dublin, Texas, right there in Central Texas. And they are adamant in that part of the country that this is the real thing. No artificial flavors, no high fructose corn syrup, only Texas's own cane imperial sugar. In fact, they promise you that every bottle is full of cane sweetened Dr. Pepper. And I'm here to testify, it is awesome, right? That's exactly Paul's point. That this promise by God is sweeter than anything man could ever give you. This promise by God is the real thing from the real one himself. Because you are saved by grace. It is never law and grace. As the law says, get it done. While grace says it is finished. Abraham's covenant was unilateral. It was unconditional. It was eternal. While the Mosaic covenant, in contrast, it was bilateral. It was between God and Moses. In fact, we're going to find out that actually in Exodus 19, God gave it to the angels first, then Moses. It wasn't from God himself. It was from God to the angels to Moses. It was given third hand. We'll also remind ourselves that law and grace are incompatible with one another. They are mutually exclusive. For God's law necessitates faith. Because if anyone desires to live by the law, to keep the law, then they must do just that. They must keep it all. And that is why Paul transitions from the superiority of the promise by God in Christ to now two sections in which he introduces my questions to show then what was the true purpose of the law. Because you are saved by grace. It is never law and grace. The law says get it done and done and done and done. While grace says it is finished. Paul sets this up with two questions. The first one in verse 19 The second one in verse 21. He then says, why then the law? For it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to who the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. For is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. 
but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see this word added here in verse 19? I mean, why the law? It's actually a very striking logical argument. You see, some of these Judaizers say, well, wait a minute then. I mean, Paul, if you're saying that it's faith like Abraham alone that justifies that Abraham was justified by God in Genesis 15 by faith 430 years before the law was ever given to Moses, then what's the purpose of the law? And Paul here in these two rhetorical questions gives a striking answer, a clear indictment on the sincerity of the hearts of these Judaizers. You see, their gospel wasn't about Christ at all. Their gospel was about them. Why the purpose of the law? Because, he says, and it was added because of transgressions. Now, the word added here in verse 19 is different than the word added in verse 15. For the word in verse 19, this is very important, speaks of something that comes alongside, not something that is added to you see, one of my favorite places to eat here is Charleston's, right? Using a lot of food industries today. Okay, here we go. Lunch is coming. Be encouraged. But one of my favorite places to eat is in Charleston's. The amazing thing is I get the same thing every single time. The chicken club salad. No onions, add bacon. Now, the hilarious thing is, is that it already comes with bacon. And every single waitress or waiter that has ever served upon me reminds me of that fact. And then I have to remind them, yes, add more more. And so now I've been eating there so much that they don't ever ask the question anymore. They're like, oh, you're the extra bacon guy, right? You have something added to what was already there. That's not Paul's point at all. That the law wasn't something that God added as some great contingency as a part of his promise. No. Paul uses the word to come alongside. That it was the purpose of the law. Are you ready for this? to be an intentional interim, a way in which God would establish a way to define and to expose and to reveal sin in its broadest sense. That it was through the law that God would outline his holiness and his moral perfection. That he would give once and for all his requirement as his people. Now the law could not cure sin then. It only simply cursed sinners. And that is why Paul is so adamant about faith in this promise. Because law by its very intention was to drive us to a desperate need of a savior. The law never saved a thing. The law never curbed or minimized sin, not one iota. It simply magnified it in a way to drive us to faith in Christ. You see, the law demands perfection and purity and thus drives us to Calvary. It is solely Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross once and for all that saves, redeems, ransoms us from the debt of our sin when we place our faith in 
The law was a means in which God would use to come alongside his followers to intentionally reveal their ultimate need can only be met by him. The law then served as a, as a stoplight to one's everyday life. I mean, have you ever thought about the simplicity of a stop sign or a stoplight? Have you ever thought about the dangerous ramifications of what can happen when one doesn't stop at a stoplight? Monday of this week, I was heading home from an appointment and was on 51 and got off at 51, headed to 129. And there's one of my, my favorite QTs in the world is right there. And there's a stoplight the moment you get off 51, headed to 129. And you can turn left, you can turn right. But there's also on 129, heading west, oncoming traffic. You've got to be sure that they stop. And so I had my oldest son with me. I had precious cargo with me. And even though clearly there was a green light in my lane, and thus a red light on their lane, that car didn't stop. Flew right through, 45 miles an hour. If I wasn't paying attention, we would have been blindsided, just like that. Have you ever thought what could happen if someone didn't stop at a stoplight? That is Paul's point right here. Why the law? Because it came alongside the promises of God. Because it established God's means as a result of his moral and perfect reflection of his character to expose, to reveal once and for all the requirement for his people. And thus a dependence upon him in all facets of life. For this law demands perfection and purity. Thus it drives us once and for all to Calvary. And that is why, historically, church fathers had quantified that the law serves as three primary things. The law is a mirror to focus on Christ. You ever thought about that? In fact, I read an article this week in 2019, so this was pre-COVID, 79% of all Americans who look in a mirror, are you ready for this? Greatly dissatisfied. 79% of us in this room. We look in a mirror, we get a little uneasy. You know, we just, we're just not satisfied with just looking in. Well, the law, spiritually, morally, had such implications that it allowed us to truly look at ourselves, not in comparing one another, but in comparing us to God and his standard, his perfection. And thus allows us to focus on the beauty and the work of Christ and Christ alone. Secondly, then, the law was a weight that anchors us to Christ. That even after we follow Christ, that the law is this gravity that weighs on us, that reminds us our need and dependence upon a Savior. That it anchors us to cling, not to this world, not to these other idols, but to the one true king in our lives. Thirdly, the law, then, is also it's a guide that drives us to Christ that is a way in which God is communicating his expectations, his perfect will for his people fulfilled in Christ. And that is why we need his promises in all aspects of our, of our lives. Because God's promise is greater than his law. 
And that's Paul's point. For in verse 19, he says, and it was put in place then by angels, by an intermediary. Now think about this. God directly gave his promises and covenant to Abram. God himself in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 gave this promise to Abraham. But God gave the law to angels in Exodus 19. And then to Moses out Mount Sinai. Now, in your own time, you can read about this. It's, it's this incredible scene to behold. It's, the Bible says that there was an incalculable number of angels. In fact, you can read this elsewhere in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Psalm 68, verse 18, Hebrews 2, 2. I mean, there were all of these angels there when God gave this law. There was smoke and earthquakes and this blazing fire representative of his glory when God gave the law to Moses. However, where the promise was given to Abram by God himself, the law was given third hand to God's people. And that is why Paul then deduces this point in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You see, the law is not evil. The law is not bad. It just functioned differently than God's promise. It had a different role. And that is why Paul uses here in verse 21, one of the strongest negatives in the entire New Testament. Certainly not. May it never be. The law just had a different role. For the law identifies the necessity for new life, but lacks the power to impart it. No, the true power of life change comes not any other way besides God's way. Through God's promises and God's promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why in verses 23 and 24... Paul concludes this section by summing up the function of the law while detailing the inferiority, the inadequacy the law has to save. And he uses here two metaphors, one in verse 23 and one in verse 24, that the law holds us captive. Secondly, in verse 24, that the law serves as this merciless guardian that drives us to Christ. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, before faith in Christ, we were sinfully confined, locked up, held in restraint, is the point, by the demands of the law. We were so condemned and overwhelmed by our sin, Paul says it's like we are in a heavy, fortified prison with no escape. But then we found Christ who sets us free from the weights and the demands of the law because he is the perfect fulfillment of the law. That we are set free in Christ, 
Because he became, according to Paul in Galatians 3, verse 13, a curse for us. That Paul, in quoting Deuteronomy 21, 23, in Galatians 3, 13, says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. He is proclaiming on the outside that he has violated God's law once and for all and paid the price on the inside. And thus, an amazing picture of the gospel. Christ Jesus took what was meant for us and our worst, graciously took upon God's wrath and condemnation on his cross. In the totality of our sin, past, present, and future, the Bible says at one time, through one act, was placed upon him. And he was judged. And he became our condemnation. He took on our wrath. That by faith, we might have his You see, the law only does this. The law only confines. The law only locks up, holds us in contempt. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, the TV version, of course, which majestically portrays the narrative of a criminal who was falsely accused and tried and condemned. And this criminal was condemned to to one of the most heinous prisons in all of New England. And in Shawshank, he meets some incredible characters. And one was Red, who was beautifully played by Morgan Freeman. How he didn't win any Oscars because of this, I mean, that's a crime. But Red was guilty. Red did do the crime and was paying the time. The only guilty man in Shawshank, he says. But there's a line that you need to know that makes Paul's point here in verse 23. You see, Red had become institutionalized. He'd been there so long that it became a part of him. And he says it like this. He says, you know, these walls are funny. You see, first you hate them, and then you get used to them. And even as time passes, you get so you depend upon them. You see, and tragically, These Judaizers, that's what happened to them and the law. They took what God had meant as an intentional means to, in an interim fashion, walk alongside his promises to point people to the end of that promise, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took God's gospel, and rather than depending upon him, they fashioned a system of works of traditions and circumcision and all of these other things. And they took God's word and they twisted it. They began bewitching some of God's people. So much so that they began to depend on the very thing that was actually enslaving them, not giving them life. And that's what the law did. It confined us. It held us captive. Until we met Christ. He then says in closing in verse 24. That the law was our guardian. Until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. That Paul uses here this imagery. You see this word guardian. That overwhelmingly the inhabitants of Asia Minor would have known and known well. A majority of them would have experienced this guardian. 
this tutor or schoolmaster. It spoke of one who had the intention of mentorship. You see, the word used by Paul here described wealthy households who would buy an educated slave to oversee the upbringing of a child. And this child would be under the complete custody of the guardian. And this mentor, this guardian, would teach the child then morality and manners and science and mathematics and all of these things. And so from the age of six to the age of 16, every child would long to be freed over the oversight of the strict disciplinarian, of this guardian who mercilessly would teach and rule as if their lives depended upon it. It is this imagery that Paul gives of the law, that the law before Christ was a severe governance that disciplined and controlled and ushered us into our lawlessness and rebellion as a means to ultimately admit we need Christ. For it is the law that drives us to Christ, for he is the end of the law and the beginning of life. And so as we leave here this morning, are we understanding the greater promise that God has for us in Christ? That though we will be tempted to naturally give our lives to depend upon other things, that we were made by him to live for him, and that God makes his promises and keeps his promises through his promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the law demands perfection and purity and drives us to Calvary. Therefore, may we embrace the need to assess who we are in light of who God's law says we are. That we need a mirror that allows us to focus on Christ. And so is there any continual sin this morning that we're struggling with? That we need to confess before a holy God Is there any pride or shortcoming that we're working out on our own besides the work of the gospel in and through us? Is there a weight that God has placed on our lives that is really intentionally a means to anchor us to Christ? Is there this invisible burden? Is there this barrier that God has entrusted you with right now that he's wanting you to entrust to him? In fact, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 30? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We give whatever it is today, this weight, we give it to Christ. I think finally, is there a guide that is driving us to Christ? Is there wisdom that God is asking us to apply? Knowledge is everywhere. Wisdom is a very rare thing. Are you testing everything in light of Christ's gospel and his glory? Is this really about him or is this about us? Are you then aligning whatever it is to God's truth? Are you allowing his word to effectively drive you to Christ? And then are you yielding to his spirit? Is your yes on the table this morning? Are you trusting to God what he has entrusted to you? Because God makes promises And God will keep his promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's promise is greater than his law. There is no other way 
besides God's way in and through Jesus Christ. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.